Well, good morning again. Uh, This is our final week in our series through the book of Ruth. Hopefully you have enjoyed this journey and learned a lot along the way. Next week, we're going to start a brand new series, a five-week series on community. What does it mean to be the people of God? How are we called to live together in a way that is uniquely Christian? And what are some of the obstacles to biblical community? So we're going to spend five weeks studying this topic. I think it's going to be a great series for us to walk through together. But here we are this morning. We're at the end of the book of Ruth. And I just want to recap quickly for us where we have been. So in Ruth chapter 1, we meet Naomi and her daughter-in-law Ruth. They leave Moab together to return to Bethlehem. Both of them are widows. Naomi is going home to Bethlehem, and Ruth the Moabite is actually leaving her home behind in an act of loyalty and kindness and going to Judah with Naomi. In chapter 2, Ruth knows that she needs to provide for herself and for Naomi, and so she goes to work out in the fields, and she finds favor and notice while working in the fields of a man named Boaz, who happens to be a relative of Naomi and is able to help them in unique ways. Chapter 3, last week we had a guest speaker, Danny Rivera, and he talked about how Ruth came and asked Boaz for her, his hand in marriage in a very unusual sort of way and asked him to be a covering over her and Naomi and to do a redemptive work for them. And so here we are, chapter 4, this morning, the final chapter, the conclusion. And the story of Ruth is bookended in a very interesting way. I don't expect you to remember this, but in week one, we talked about how chapter one, in chapter one of the book of Ruth, the word return occurs 12 different times. And we come to chapter four, and there's another word that occurs 12 different times, and it's the word redeem. And so it starts with return, and it ends with redeem, and this morning, we're going to talk about redemption. Last weekend, uh, our neighborhood where my wife and our three girls live, it was garage sale weekend. I don't know how, if you love garage sales or not. I know some of you are garage sale hounds. But uh, we were, had a garage sale, and we had stuff that we wanted to sell, so we put it out. And garage sales kind of cracked me up because it's like my girls love being a part of a garage sale because they get to sell their old junk and get money, and they use that money to buy new junk <laughs> that they will sell at next year's garage sale. And it's the circle of garage sale product. And so they, they, they sell stuff, they buy stuff, they sell stuff. But I was thinking, like, every item at garage sales is basically looking for redemption. Somebody see my value. Obviously, I don't have value to my original owner anymore, or else I wouldn't be out here for sale. But would somebody come along and see my value and purchase me and buy me and give me new hope and give me new future and give me something new? It's a story of redemption at these garage sales. I think if we're honest, we can relate to that. All of us at some point in our lives are looking for redemption, uh, that someone would come along and see our value, our worth, and speak that to us and offer that to us. Redemption is this universal thing that all of us need. And this morning in chapter 4 of the book of Ruth, we're going to see four redeemers. There's actually four redeemers in this chapter. There's an unwilling redeemer. There is a willing redeemer. There is a given redeemer, and there's a greater redeemer, okay? So we're going to go through those. There's the unwilling redeemer, the willing redeemer, the given redeemer, and the greater redeemer. Let's talk first about the unwilling redeemer. Let's turn to Ruth chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. It says, Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. He's at the gate of the city. And behold, the redeemer, this is the first redeemer, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, and sit down here. And he turned aside, and he sat down. 
And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Now, what's going on here? Well, the town gate was a very important place. Two things happened at the town gate. Number one, the elders would come there to hear complaints and settle disputes between members of the community. But the other thing that would happen is that at the town gate, business was done, important business, especially businesses that required formalities to be observed, such as the witnessing of agreements. So just like you need some things signed off on, you need witnesses to sign off on things, uh, this is what would happen at the town gate. And Boaz gets this other redeemer, gathers together these 10 elders and says, basically, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling some land. It's land that belonged to Elimelech, her, her husband. Now, we don't know if this land uh, was sold off and they were trying to purchase it back or if it still belonged to Naomi and never left their ownership and she just was trying to earn some money off of it. But whatever is happening here, they're trying to sell this land. And so Boaz says, I am telling you this in the presence of these elders because you are the nearest redeemer. You're the nearer redeemer. You're the one who gets basically first dibs on this. And if you will redeem it, please do. But if you will not, let me know, and I will redeem it. Now, a little background to the scene. The nation of Israel has redemption in her DNA. The idea of the redeemer goes right back to the time of Moses when God rescued the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. They were his people. They were enslaved in Egypt. They were in deep trouble for 400 years enslaved in Egypt. And so God comes to their aid, and you probably know this story. He hears their cry. He sends them a deliverer named Moses, and then he sends 10 plagues to free them from Egyptian rule and from the hand of Pharaoh. He parts the Red Sea so that they can escape, and then he destroys the Egyptian army. And from that point on, Israel refers to God as their redeemer, the one who redeemed them and rescued them from slavery in Egypt. In fact, God often from that point forward refers to himself as, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, who redeemed you. So the history of the nation of Israel, they were a people before this, but they became a nation after this. The history of the nation of Israel began with redemption. And so this principle of redemption was enshrined in the law that God gave them through Moses. And here's what's really interesting. God told them in this law that not only is he a redeemer, but that he wants them to be redeemers too. That they have a redemptive work to do if they're going to be his people. Here's how that worked. When an Israelite family became very poor and had to sell their land off to survive, which is what might have happened with Elimelech, the nearest male relative, the kinsman redeemer, as we learned last week, the Goel, had the responsibility of rescuing them from poverty by buying their land back and then giving it back to the family. This was called the restoration or the redemption of property. If they became so poor that they had to sell themselves into slavery or servitude, a rich relative was supposed to rescue them by purchasing their freedom, Leviticus 25. This, too, was a form of redemption. And then finally, if a man died leaving his widow without children, which is a situation in which Ruth finds herself and Naomi because her two sons died, then the nearest, near, sorry, the nearest male relative was supposed to step in and marry the widow and enable her to have children, specifically a son, so that they could inherit their father's property and keep it in the family. And this is the way that family survived back then. This was a third form of redemption. So that's what's happening here. That's the, what Boaz is referencing. 
And the other man, who we don't know his name, and it's interesting, the reason we don't know his name, commentators say, is because he ends up being the unwilling redeemer. He writes himself out of the story. And actually, when Boaz says, friend, come sit down, let's talk, in the Hebrew, friend is, not a, friend, friend is a kind translation. The most accurate translation is so-and-so. <laughs> you know, when you can't remember someone's name, you know, you know, so-and-so, whatchamacallit, what's his, you know. That, that's basically what, what the Hebrew author is saying, Mr. So-and-so. It doesn't even matter, he's insignificant, he was unwilling to redeem. The other man is the nearer relative, and so Boaz says, you get first dibs. And at first, the first redeemer says, I'll take it. This is a good deal for me. More property equals more money. And then Boaz, who has really set this guy up perfectly, says, all right, cool, one more thing. If we turn this mic down a little bit, I'm getting a buzz above me. One more thing. If you take the land, you got to take Ruth. You have to marry Ruth. And then he emphasizes, this is Boaz, I think, being a little clever, Ruth the Moabite. Uh, 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 like, you know, not a Jewish woman, like a Moabite. So you get the land, but you got to marry Ruth. And immediately this is a problem for Mr. So-and-so <laughs> because he knows a couple of things. Number one, this is more mouths to feed. Number two, this is another wife. One's enough, right? This is another wife. This is extra trouble. But the real issue was this. Her child would inherit the land someday. That's the whole deal. You give her a son so that her son, so he would, in the long run, he would not keep the land. The land would go to this son of Ruth, but not only that, the son of Ruth might have a rightful claim to some of this guy's original land. So he's watching his wealth disappear in front of him, and he says, I am unwilling. I will not do this. What I promised to do, what I claimed I would do, I will not. Now, in week one, we said that Ruth is a historical narrative, which means that this is a story that actually happened. It's not an allegory. So we can't read this, and every little thing doesn't represent some deeper spiritual truth. So while the unwilling redeemer doesn't represent something, it does remind us of something. And the unwilling redeemer reminds me of this, that redemption is promised by many, but it's only delivered by one. Redemption is promised by many, but it's only found in one. There's so many things in this world and in our lives that say, if you get me, I will redeem you. If you're successful enough, you'll be valuable. You won't have, if you earn enough money, you'll have true peace. If people respect you, if that person loves you, I will, they will restore to you your value and your worth. They will secure your future for you. They will remove from you your pain and from your past. But we've learned time and time again that the things of this world cannot redeem us. They promise that they can, but at the end of the day, they're unwilling because they cannot pay the price it takes to redeem you and me. In Psalms 49, the psalmist says, they trust in their wealth and they boast of great riches. Yet their wealth and their riches, listen to this, cannot redeem them. They cannot redeem themselves from death by paying a ransom to God. What good is your money and wealth and success and career and power and pleasure and experiences and relationships? How are you going to put that all into some sort of package and offer it to God as a price for your redemption? You cannot redeem yourself with those things. The psalmist says redemption does not come so easily, for no one can pay enough to live forever and never see the grave. We don't have it. This world doesn't have it. Anything that says that they will pay the price to redeem you, at the end of the day, you will pay the price to have that thing. And unwilling redeemers leave us without hope. And that's what we have here is an unwilling redeemer. Thankfully, this story and our story has a willing redeemer. So let's go on. 
Boaz says, this is what Boaz has been waiting for. This is what he's been hoping for. This is playing out exactly how he wanted it to play out. And so now Boaz says, I will. I will redeem this land and I will marry Ruth, the Moabite. Let's look at verse nine. Boaz says to everyone that's there, you are witnesses this day. So Boaz is doing this all properly and publicly so that no one can question this in the future. You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malon. This was the sons of Naomi and Elimelech. One of them was the husband of Ruth. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought her to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. So he's speaking of the purpose behind this redemption so that the family name would continue. That the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. So this is the legal proceedings that are taking place. Verse 11, then all the people who are at the gate and the 10 elders there who are seated said, we are witnesses. May, and then they, they speak this blessing. I love this. May the Lord make the woman, Ruth, the Moabite, who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah. What a blessing to invoke the wives of the forefathers, the, the, the patriarchs, Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. From them came most of the tribes of Israel, the sons. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Now, this is not actually a very heartwarming story if you go back and read what happened here. But the reason why it's referenced is because the similar experience where there was a widow who needed to have a son, and she was given a son, although in a very unusual sort of um, somewhat disturbing way. But um, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. And what I want us to notice here about the willing redeemer is that redemption is costly. It cost Boaz something. He had to pay of his own money to purchase this land. Boaz already had a lot of land. He didn't need this land. We don't know anything about this land, whether it was of any value or of any worth, but Boaz did this. And then for Boaz to bring Ruth the Moabite into his house, it cost him financially. It divvied up his inheritance potentially. We, we believe Boaz was a widow, a widower who probably had other uh, children at that time. So now here's another child who's gonna get some of his inheritance. It also may have cost Boaz, in some people's eyes, some, some reputation. Here he is marrying a Moabite woman. Redemption is costly. And as I was thinking about this, I was, I was asking myself, if God wants us to be part of his redemptive work, just like he wanted Israel to have redemption in their DNA, what does it cost us to love other people? What is it costing us to be part of God's plan of redemption? When you think of the people in your life, in your workplace, in your school, in your neighborhoods, in your home, in your family that need to be redeemed and experience the redemptive power of the Holy Spirit in their lives, what's your role in that? What is it costing you to see the redemption come to them? As a church, we exist. Our vision statement, as you can see when you walk out every Sunday on the wall above the doors, we exist to see gospel transformation, which is radical life change. Gospel transformation in every area of our lives and in every life in our area. It starts in us. You heard Colin and Olivia say it this morning. What God does in you, he intends to do through you. 
So it's gospel transformation. God, every area of my life that you would bring gospel transformation, radical spiritual change and social change in me and around me, gospel transformation in every area of my life, but also gospel transformation in every life in our area, the town of Clay. 60,000 people live in the town of Clay. How many people live in your neighborhoods? How many people shop where you shop and work where you work? Our vision is to see gospel transformation in every single one of those lives. Now, some people, they don't care about gospel transformation. They just want behavior modification. If people would just behave better, I'd be happy. But behavior modification, as helpful as it can be, it never made someone right with God. You are not made right with God because you've been able to somehow figure out how to behave better. So we're not about behavior modification primarily. We believe the gospel does change the way that we live, but that's not our main goal. Our main goal is gospel transformation. Some people want selective gospel transformation. What I mean is this. Jesus, you can have this part of my life, but hands off over here. You can have this part of my life, but hands off. You can have me on Sunday mornings for an hour, Jesus. You're my Lord for one hour a week. (laughs) But the rest of the week, I'll kind of do what I want to do. Some people just want helpful information. Some people want timely inspiration. Some people just want a weekly spiritual uh, product to consume. But we want gospel transformation, which is complete and total change, redemption in our hearts, in our worlds. Now, how do we do that? How will we see gospel transformation? And that's our mission here at Trinity. Our mission is to make disciples. Making disciples for the glory of our God and the good of our community. So the question is, if you're going to be part of what God's doing here at Trinity, the question is not, do you show up on Sundays? Do you give? Are you engaged? Do you serve? We appreciate all of that, and we need all of that. The question is this, are you making disciples beyond Sunday? Are you giving your life away for the things that Jesus gave his life away? And what is it costing you? And if the only thing that the Christian faith is costing you is your 9 to 10 a.m. on Sunday morning, I want to challenge you that there's more. That Jesus has more for you. He's called you to more. And everywhere you go and everything you do at work, at school, at play, there's opportunities to love people, to be friends to people, to invite people into your life, and to carve up your life and give it away for the mission of God. It's going to cost you to make disciples. It's going to cost you a lot more than coming to church for an hour on Sundays. What is it going to cost us? We use every resource God gives us, our time, our talent, and our treasure for his mission. At times, we're going to have to reject the good life that the world seems to offer us and embrace the values and the kingdom. Matthew 6.33, we're going to have to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness above everything else. While the rest of the world is chasing after certain things, we have a different kingdom that we're a part of. Now, you might be wondering, well, why should I do that? That sounds like a lot of work. That sounds pretty inconvenient. Well, the reason why you should do it is because you have been redeemed. You've been redeemed, which means you've been bought with a price. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 6.20. You have been bought with a price. You are not your own. That is the most anti-American phrase you could say right now. You are not your own. But that's the heart of the gospel. You were bought with a price. You don't even belong to yourself anymore. You are not your own. So glorify God, specifically in 1 Corinthians 6.20, where Paul's talking about sexuality. He's saying glorify God with your body. But really the message of scripture is glorify God with your life, with everything that you have and every resource that God gives you. You and I have nothing that was not given to us by God and we are nothing that was not purchased back by God. Given everything, redeemed, and so we give everything for his purposes. He is a willing redeemer, so we should be willing redeemers too in the lives of people. All right, the third redeemer that we see in this story is the given redeemer. Let's go to verse 
13. So, ba- so Boaz took Ruth and he became his wife. He went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, this is the woman uh, of Judah, of Bethlehem. Listen to this blessing they give over Naomi. Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. Now, if they stop there, I think we would think they're talking about Boaz. The Lord gave you a redeemer, and his name is Boaz. But let's keep reading. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is worth more to you than seven sons, and all the women said amen, uh, has given birth to him. So the redeemer that the women are talking about is not Boaz, it's the baby. Because Ruth has given birth to this baby. Naomi now has a grandson. Now what does this mean? The baby boy, whose name is Obed, that Naomi holds in her lap, is a redeemer too. He's the given redeemer. And there's two things that we learn about redemption here that are very important. Number one, you cannot earn the gift of redemption. But number two, you are never beyond the hope of redemption. You cannot earn the gift of redemption, but you're never beyond the hope of redemption. I'm going to have Pastor Anthony join me. This baby's a gift. Think about this. Obed is a gift from Ruth, who has stuck with her mother-in-law and loved her all the way from Moab to Bethlehem and all the way through the grief and loss that she suffered. This baby is a gift from Boaz, who fulfilled his promise that he made to extend the name of another family. And this baby is a gift from God. All babies are gifts from God. All life is a gift from God. And his fi- this, this gift of this baby is God's final answer to Naomi's complaints about bitterness and emptiness. You remember when Naomi came back to Bethlehem and she said, don't call me Naomi because Naomi means pleasant one. Call me Mara, which means bitter, because the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. The Lord's arm is extended against me. And here's God's final word. I've never been against you. I've always been for you. And here is my final answer to the bitterness and emptiness. This is my redemptive work. You cannot earn the gift of redemption, but you're never beyond the hope of redemption. And all of this, this baby points to the fourth redeemer. Because here's the first clue that there's a fourth redeemer, the greater redeemer. That this redeemer, Obed, he's a baby born in a city called Bethlehem. A baby born in Bethlehem who would redeem people. Well, that brings us to the greater redeemer. Verse 16, the story ends. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. She cared for this child. She raised this child. The woman of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. This is how much this boy meant to her. He was like a son to her. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, who is the father of David. By waiting until the conclusion to reveal Naomi's connection to King David, if you read this story for the first time, you would not know this until the very end, that Naomi here is in the line, Ruth is in the line of King David. What the narrator, what the storyteller is doing is that he or she is spotlighting the Lord's hidden and blessed providence at work throughout all of the circumstances of the book of Ruth. Think about the circumstances that led to this moment where Obed becomes the father of Jesse, who becomes the father of David, who becomes the king after God. God's own heart that Israel needs to lead them in many ways into their golden years. Here's what had to happen to get there. A famine in Bethlehem. Elimelech and Naomi leave Judah and they sojourn and settle in Moab. 
Their sons marry Moabite women, maybe even against their advice. Elimelech dies. Both of the sons die. Naomi hears in the fields, oh, there's food again in Bethlehem. She decides to return. She tells Orpah and Ruth to stay, but Ruth insists that she will go. Ruth gets back to Bethlehem and takes the initiative to get food. She happens to end up in Boaz's field. Boaz happens to show up that day, and he notices her, and he shows her favor. Naomi directs Ruth what to do, and she's obedient, and she goes to to Boaz. Boaz responds righteously when there's other ways that he could have responded. Then he comes to the city gate where the first redeemer happens to walk by on that day. And he gets him to sit down, and the first redeemer will not redeem, but Boaz will. Boaz takes Ruth into his home and they have this child Obed Obed, and all for what? Because this story, if you remember, began with the phrase in the days of the judges where there was no king and everyone did what was right in his or her own eyes and it ends with the promise of a king, King David, who will lead Israel into victory and into a season of rest. And so one of the commentaries says this, the book's surprise ending thereby calls the covenant family, and that's you and I also this morning, his family, to trust in the Lord's loving kindness, even if they cannot perceive his providence or know how he will accomplish his salvation purposes during their days on earth. You may be in a season where you don't understand what God's doing. You cannot see his providence at work in your midst. But the book of Ruth stands as this startling reminder that God is always at work for his people to redeem and to rescue and to repurpose. And when you are walking even through the valley of the shadow of death, he is with you. And he is working out all things for your good and for his glory. And this is the promise that we have here, that the providence of God, the plans of God, the purposes of God, nothing will derail them but he will bring about his perfect will. Through Ruth comes David, and as you know, or as you may know, through David comes Jesus. Let me finish with this paragraph that I read that I loved so much this week. Ruth 4 points to the person and work of David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom God appointed the heir of all things. The Lord Jesus redeems believers from sin and death, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. See, Boaz bought back Ruth with silver and gold, but Jesus buys us back with his precious blood. Because of his costly self-sacrificial ransom, we who are united to him by faith, we will never be cut off. He grants us the spirit of adoptions as his sons and daughters and thereby incorporates us into his covenant family, providing you and me with incomparable security this morning as heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And when Jesus returns on that day to redeem our bodies and consummate his kingdom, we shall behold the full outcome of our Father's eternal purposes in his Son. And we who trust in him shall see his face, and his name will be written upon our foreheads. Revelation 22. So no matter the sorrows we carry and the losses that we incur in this life, until the day when God wipes every tear from our eyes, we can trust that in Christ God is for us and is even using our trials to advance our ultimate good and his greater glory. On him, our king, we have set our hope, and in him we find our rest. Here's what this means. There's a redeemer. There's a greater redeemer. Jesus, our Redeemer. And that's where Ruth leaves us, in our hearts, hoping for redemption. It's a wonder to marvel at. It's something to sing about. It's a truth never to be forgotten, especially when we find ourselves let down by our own sinfulness. 
And when the moral and spiritual chaos all around and within seems overwhelming, you and I don't have to despair because a baby was born in Bethlehem. Light has come into the world and the darkness never has and never will be able to put it out. Let's pray together this morning.